This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Jordana Levine, and you're listening to the Inspired Table Podcast. Each week, you'll be led down an inspired path of curiosity as I chat to some of my favorite soul-centered folk about the things that inspire me daily in the hope that some of that juicy inspiration will rub off on you. So pour yourself your favorite cuppa and take a seat at my table. I promise you'll leave happier, healthier, and bursting with inspiration. blessed to have some incredible and inspiring people in my life that I can call my friends. And today's conversation is with one of them. Tim Shepard is one of my closest pals, and he is in the middle of filming an incredible documentary called Setting the Bar, a film that follows some of the best chocolate makers in the world deep into the Peruvian Amazon in search of undiscovered cacao varietals. And if I didn't have you at chocolate, the film, which he made with his wife Amy, also explores environmental sustainability, fair trade practices, small-scale agriculture, and the impact on the livelihoods of the Peruvian farmers and the handcrafted chocolate makers. If you're an avid listener of this podcast, you'll know how important conscious consumerism is to me. And this beautiful and somewhat unexplored origin story of craft chocolate told by my beautiful friend Tim is one that needs to be heard, explored and shared. Full disclosure is that Tim and I are buddies um, we met when we were both studying journalism many moons ago and God knows why, but we've managed to remain friends all this time. Yeah, it's been a dream. It's been an absolute dream. A, an absolute dream, did you say? Yeah. Yeah, it has been a dream. Agreed. I was trying to work out before we got on this call how long it had been since we um, chatted properly. And then Skype told me the last time we spoke was the 31st of March, 2015. 15? Yeah. So like, oh, cool. See, we're friends. I told you. Because <laughs> it was just last year. Well, it was 18 months ago. That's a, that's a while between conversations. Yeah. But I think when you live overseas, I mean, that's, that's what I consider to be good friends. Like if I still speak to you like periodically within like one or two years, I mean, that's pretty close. Yeah, I think, I think you're right too. Yeah. I mean, thank God for Facebook, hey? one, Yeah, and that one was just for my mum as well, to let her know that I'm not ignoring her. I've just got many people to talk to. <laughs> yeah. God, I hope you've spoken to your mum sooner than you've spoken to me. 
<laughs> so I'm trying. I'm doing my best. <laughs> I sent her a text the other day. <laughs> no, not me. Yeah, I that's didn't, cover, I didn't right? send her a text. <laughs> so just so everybody knows, you are overseas. Where are you? Where are you at this very moment in time? So at the moment we're in um, Oaxaca, Mexico, in southern Mexico. So cool. And we've been here since about February um, with a lot of trips to the US and Peru working for this film and other projects as well in between. But our base is Oaxaca, Mexico. Yeah, beautiful. And that's why that's why I've got you on the show today because I really want to talk about this amazing film, which I'm going to let you explain because I don't want to mess it up at all. <laughs> but before we get started, can you tell people a little bit about you? The Tim Shepherd that I know, well, maybe not all of the Tim Shepherd that I know, <laughs> but start a little, you know, some, you, some of the above. Yeah. well, you know, you're living in Mexico now, but you definitely didn't grow up there. So let's start, let's start from the very beginning. Um, so I was, uh, I'm from Sydney originally, um, and working there in news and journalism and until finally having enough and getting out of that industry a little bit because it's a little bit cutthroat and a little bit too intense for me. Yeah. So we, um, I went traveling, um, in the middle of it to kind of have a break and was riding a motorcycle down from LA to, we wanted to get to Argentina, me and a buddy of mine, but um, he crashed his bike. And so I ended up in Guatemala mm-hmm. where I met my wife, now wife. She wasn't my wife then. Not now when you met her, no. Um, it's one of my favorite, uh, favorite love stories. <laughs> but yes, keep going. <laughs> um, so we, I then, she's from the US, from California. So I ended up moving there and I lived there for maybe five years or so, um, working in film production and largely food and environmental issues around around food. Um, so we did that for a while and then I got sick of that. And so we decided to just take off and move back to Guatemala and see how things were. So we drove down from um, San Francisco where we were living and ended up in Guatemala and spent a couple of months there. But on the way through, we did a little bit of work in Oaxaca, Mexico, and kind of fell in love with it. And so I was itching to get back here and finally managed to convince my wife that this is where we should be. So now we're here, we're very happy, and I think we're going to stay here for a a while. Yeah, you've got to stay there until I get there. Yeah. Well, as long as it's within the next five years, I can't plan any further than that ever. Oh God, that's pretty good. I can't plan further than twelve months. I will so get this there. This is my new my new year's resolution was to was to stay somewhere for five years. Yeah, be... wow. And how so we'll see. how is it that you can stay there for five years? Um, like visa wise? Yeah. I just keep on like um, because I do so much work in the US still, like a lot of my clients are back there. Um, I go back there a lot, so it renews my visa. So I just I'm on a tourist visa, but we I get to, you know, come in and out. And as long as you leave every six months, you're all good. Yeah, cool. Well, that, you're living the dream, Tim Shepard. Well, I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. TBD. <laughs> we'll get back to you on that. Okay, so let's, <laughs> ta- let's talk about this film. Um, it's called Setting the Bar. 
it, it, it combines all of the things that I love, which is chocolate, um, sustainability, consciousness around food production, bit of kind of personal mm. journeys in there, personal stories. And um, you, and of me. course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you want to maybe um, give us the um, yeah? I mean, that's kind of what the synopsis. Yeah, so it's a film about. I mean, I think you absolutely hit all the kind of major points that we're trying to focus on, and what gets us excited about the film as well. Um, it's we travelled down to Peru for six weeks with a couple of um, the US's best craft chocolate makers, like the small guys who are doing like really cool, really sustainable and just incredibly delicious chocolate, um, like bean to bar chocolate. So we traveled down there and we were trying to find a new origin of cacao. So, you know, on all the chocolate bars you see, you see like Madagascar or like, you know, Peru from this type. Um, the area in Peru that we went to is the, um, has been traced back to the genetic origin of cacao. Ah. So where all cacao has come from was from where we were. So in theory, um, we wanted to see whether there was a lot of like interesting types of cacao as a, you know, um, like genetic types of cacao. Like varieties so, of the of the bean? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. at the moment, we, we kind of use largely like three types of cacao which have been spread through the world but um we wanted to find more we wanted to find like more interesting types we wanted to um just to see what else was out there kind of thing from the chocolate maker's perspective yeah from the chocolate maker's perspective like we no one i mean everything is fairly homogenized in in cacao or in chocolate at the moment like yeah. we're really not using um a lot of different types so but they exist and they're disappearing and that's kind of the scary part and that's the part that um concerned me the most was because a lot of these really big um chocolate companies like i don't know i don't really want to name them but you know I'll the chocolate them, like um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> yeah like cadbury hershey mars all that kind of yeah. stuff are um thought to be kind of going down there and basically taking out like large tracts of land so they can plant kind of very generic, um, largely tasteless and but very productive, big um, cacao pods. Yeah. But these cacao pods that we're looking for are these like really interesting little ones where there'll be like three or four on a tree or like, um, you know, they, and so people look at them and farmers look at them and, and without knowing what they are, say, these aren't very productive, we can cut these down for more productive types of cacao. And then, so they're disappearing. So that's kind of, to me, very, very scary. And I think the other part where um, it's interesting to me is to say to these farmers, like, like th these trees already exist in your backyard. These types of cacaos are right there. Like, this is cool, like, let's, find a way to harness these and put in some extra effort to make sure these cacaos can be ready for the craft chocolate market and you can get a higher premium for them mm. and also just work with what you already have like that exists in your backyard. 
Yeah. Okay, so I want to talk about that more. But before we get there, I just want to go back to the original intention of the film. Did you go over there knowing that it was going to uncover all of these things about sustainability and about food production? Or was it originally just about going to find this kind of rare varietal? No, so um, going even further back, um, this is like interviewception, I believe. Um, We met in Guatemala this really incredible guy um, called Steve Bergen, and he spends his life, um, or just kind of randomly met him in a bar, and he spends his life in Latin America traveling around. He's homeless. He's, I mean, he's well-dressed, but he um, <laughs> he just spends his life <laughs> trying to find um, these types of cacao, and he spends his time in these regions. He goes back year after year trying to work with these chocolate makers and talking to him about sustainability and what exists down there um, was just, like, so fascinating and also just how incredibly difficult his work is, like just this like almost thankless task of mm. trying to preserve these types of cacao. So we wanted to get on board with him and try to um, try to work with him using the skills that we have to make people aware of this and make people aware of like, I mean, it's an interesting, I mean, to me, it's a very interesting story. Um, yeah, and we wanted to kind of help him out with his with his dream of saving the rainforest through um, native cacao. Totally, and I look, I, I think it's really interesting too, and I think that a lot of people are going to find this very interesting. But there's so many – well, because there's so many different layers to it. First of all, I didn't even really know much about – the growing and harvesting of the cacao bean. I mean, I've seen a photo mm. of a cacao bean before, but, you know, aside from that, I had no idea. Um, yeah. What sort of stuff What sort of stuff should the consumer, do you think, be looking out for when it comes to buying handcrafted chocolate? I don't know, man. It's a, it's a difficult question. Um, I mean, I think I'm not for a second going to make the presumption that people would buy a cacao bar without considering taste. And I think this is what all these chocolate makers are interested in is, um, is both the sustainability and this incredible taste. And the cool part about it is that it goes hand in hand together. So I would just say, I mean, eat chocolate. It's fun. (laughs) (laughs) It tastes good. Um, And you know, you can start to work out like what flavor profiles work and stuff for you. And then if you start like finding something you like, you know, we're, for us, we're highlighting four chocolate makers in the US um, who just, who really live for um, sustainably sourcing cacao, like the, the level of passion and everything that you see with them is incredible. But I mean, I don't know the answer to that. I would just try and make sure that, the, I mean, the same with all the foods that we're eating now, Try and find the foods that, um, you know, try and learn where the foods are from. Try to learn where this product is from and how it was sourced and everything like that. Yeah. Because all you're going to do is interesting conversation with a very passionate person or not. <laughs> just on a just on a foodie to foodie level, what do you think? Do you, I mean, do you think that artisanal 
producers and artisanal food kind of goes hand in hand these days with environmental sustainability? Like, do you think you can be a small producer and not be conscious of that sort of stuff? No, I mean, that's the cool part about it is like, it has to, you know, I mean, even if you're looking for organic foods and you don't care about, you know, the, the pesticides or anything used in it, I mean, you're still getting someone who like often and usually and hopefully cares more about their food and puts more work into their food than, you know, someone who's using like um, practices which create like a lot more productivity just straight off the bat. Yeah. So tell me, making a <laughs> documentary in the Peruvian Amazon there must have been some challenges that you came up against. Well, actually, before we dive into that, how big was the team that went over there? So from our perspective, it was um, my producer, who is also my wife, Amy, uh, who just gets paid in food, which is lucky. (laughs) Um, And for part of it, I had a very, very talented um, American Guatemalan um, director and cinematographer working with me who came down ah. for half of the trip. And then we had four chocolate makers and Steve Bergen, the cacao hunter and <laughs> conservationist. <laughs> I love him already. He's cool. He's a really interesting guy. He's kind of crazy, but in a, in a good way, it manifests itself well, I think. Yeah, cool. What a great character. He's totally a character. And yeah. a lot of the film is kind of based just around his desperate attempt to get people on board because he knows he's got this really incredible idea and this really incredible vision and he's like, he's trying to work out the best way to make that happen. What are some of the challenges of filming Peruvian, Peruvians? Is that what we call them? What do we call them? Uh, Peruvians, yeah. Peruvians, yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure there was a bit of a language barrier there to begin with. Well, so I speak adequate Spanish. Amy speaks uh, very good Spanish. So from our perspective, the language barrier, it's all in, it's largely in Spanish. Like a lot of people speak their own native languages. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the women in the villages that we were, um, you know, these very, very small villages with very little outside contact um, to even parts of Peru, let alone the world. Um, they they only speak their languages, so the language barrier is really difficult. But I think the thing that was most striking, and this is kind of a testament to what Steve does and the chocolate makers are doing, is just the pure logistics of where we were and like just physically how to get places. Like we'd be in these very small towns. Um, and we'd need to go five hours up the river on a small boat. So we, I mean, this one happened, we had to find the boat, um, but that boat driver didn't have an engine. So we had to go find an engine off another guy. Um, there was a national holiday. So that guy was drinking. So we had to talk to his wife who didn't know whether we could take it. And then he finally turned up the next day and he was in hospital for certain reasons. So we had to go and visit him in hospital, get the engine, (laughs) travel to get gas, travel to find the boat driver, travel to find like another person from the village who could, um, to speak for us kind of thing to like, to make sure, you know, to say like, we're we're good. What we're doing is like interesting. You you know, you don't need to feel threatened or anything like that. 
it was just intense. Like the whole time it was so difficult to put it together. And then not knowing once you got there, whether you were going to get what you were after anyway. Oh, oh my God. And every, yeah, like we'd get to these villages and it would be like, this type of cacao is likely never been made into chocolate before, but they harvested it yesterday. Um, so it's, we won't be able to use it. And so that's it for that season. And then we turn up at another village and he's like, oh, we have these really cool trees that um, they visited last year when Steve was there, but the kids ate them. The kids just ate the pulp around the fruit. Yeah. So can't use that. It's just that, like time after time after time. And we, I mean, for almost six weeks, we just came up short, <laughs> just like time after time. It was like, it was kind of heartbreaking. So did you... The, did you actually harvest the the plants and take them back to the US to make chocolate with? Like, was that part of the process? Well, so the difficult part about cacao in these kind of regions and what the chocolate makers are doing is you, you can't just um, you can't just harvest the pods, take this, um, take the beans, and take them home. They need to be fermented there within a certain amount of time, which is like two or three days or that kind of thing, um, you know, to like perfect fermentation. Um, you know, they need to reach the right temperature. They need to find like, I mean, even finding a box, which has to be like within certain parameters is a really difficult thing to do. Um, and then they need to be dried out on these like big drying beds. And if any of these steps go wrong, like with any sort of fermentation or anything like that, you lose it, so it's so, all full over. So yeah, wow. Is that this is, is that the difference du- between? Oh, sorry, sorry, go on. No, no, you go, you go. No, that's it. End uh, of is, story. Is, <laughs> I am done. Is that is that process done by the farmer, or is that someone in between the farmer and the chocolate maker? Well, again, another issue. So um, a lot of it. There's a couple of good cooperatives um, who handle both coffee and cacao. Um, a lot of them are way more focused on coffee because it's a lot more lucrative and a lot easier to do, a lot less processes. Okay. Um, and as the, the general idea is that um, chocolate is maybe 20 years behind where coffee is now. So coffee is established. Um, but with climate change, it's pushing coffee. Coffee only grows in higher growing areas and cacao in largely lower growing areas. Oh. Um, but as climate change happens, it's pushing the coffee further and further up into the mountains. And so a lot of these collectives are now moving towards cacao because it's more um, sustainable and possible to do now. So there's kind of a really big push to put chocolate on the map. And there's a lot of people both here in Peru and each of these um, chocolate uh, cacao growing regions who are like doing their best to like to get the ball rolling behind chocolate and see what can happen and what's that going to take is that does that come back to the consumer spending more money on the chocolate or like what i mean what does it take for it for that industry to be able to grow in a sustainable manner Mm, yeah that's an interesting question i think um i think it goes through the whole chain and i think that's why we want to make this film is because we want to like start connecting these dots between farmers, the collectives, the chocolate maker, and then the consumer from there. Mm. So it does take the consumer, you know, the consumer is going to do whatever they want. Like they're going to, they're going to follow what is, you know, 
what they consider it worth to be a good chocolate bar. We would really like to show why a chocolate bar, like a craft chocolate bar, should be what is being charged right now and probably a significant amount more. What is the handcrafted artisanal chocolate trade like in the States compared to Australia? I mean, you probably haven't seen it over here for a while. When were you last home? Oh, God. I was there for a couple of days for a wedding like two years ago. Yeah, Um, yeah. And I actually, I have an interview with someone from New Zealand, a New Zealand chocolate maker tomorrow because I want to find out more about what is happening in chocolate there. But as far as the US chocolate market, it's growing and it's really cool. And um, while I think at the moment globally US culture, like US food culture, you know, be it diners, um, burgers, Mexican style American food, and now chocolate is really picking up a lot. So it's now spreading to places like um, to Japan where it's going off over there due to the popularity of American culture. So it's becoming more and more accepted as like a part. I guess it's becoming a little more European in the way consumers have chocolate. Like it's not a binge eating thing as we kind of tend to think of the US. No offense to the US. Um, it's more of a, you know, after dinner, you have like, you know, a couple of pieces of this really nice chocolate, you know, as a, as an interesting flavor profile to finish off your meal kind of thing. And I see that more and more. I think so too. I mean, I can't, I'm not a connoisseur um, of chocolate at all, but I can definitely see in Australia, this movement towards those, you know, richer, darker cacaos and raw chocolate and it's almost fallen into the health sphere because um yeah yeah yeah. i mean the more cacao you have in it the better it is for you the less sugar there is in there um you know raw chocolates are Mm -hmm. huge at the moment um so there's definitely a market for it here Mm. but i just don't know i just don't know what the what the consumer trade is like yeah i mean one thing i can attest to and i've heard this from chocolate makers in a bunch of different countries is that very very few people are making like despite this growing trend very few people are making a lot of money out of it um it's an incredibly difficult and time-consuming process you know probably twice the amount of steps involved in chocolate as there is in like putting coffee together but these people are doing it and like this this demand is growing and it's really interesting but as it grows uh, because there's so many steps in it you need to um you need to buy so much more machinery so every time you you know fill this new order with a you know small like market or like a uh, international market or something like that you need to then buy all these machines, which will get you to the point where you can sell again. And after that, you kind of back to even. Yeah. But I, I guess that's, that's, I mean, that's a wider issue just with food production in general, right? Like, you know, kind of brings up all of that conversation around big food and keeping up with consumer demand and having to cut corners in order to get mass production of certain products out there. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what the answer is. That this, I mean, I hope this film can go a small way, like many films have done before, to prove why these things are important and why you know we need to care and why it's like can 
pay more for certain things. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of really cool people working in this field as well. So I hope it just keeps on growing, you know? Yeah. So what's the plan with the film? What do you need? Do you need some money? <laughs> do you need some investors? <laughs> what do you need? <laughs> Publicity? What's happening with it? That was very sweet. I appreciate the offer for money. Um, <laughs> at the moment, we're working on the trailer, which is surprisingly so, so difficult, putting like even just six weeks of work, um, yes. all of which, well, not all of which, some of which I'm proud of, into a three-minute video is incredibly difficult. Totally. So we're working on that. And then after that, we start to head to, we go to the US for a month and a bit to um, do a couple of fundraisers, do a couple of screenings for the trailer, um, do a couple of talks at chocolate festivals. Um, and hopefully just, at the moment, we're trying to raise money. Like this part of the process is like where we can see who we can involve in our, um, you know, post-production. So I want to be able to pay my editors. I want to be able to pay composers. I want to be able to pay all the people involved in this chain. Um, so, yeah, so we're looking for money or uh, investors and we're having a Kickstarter with some particular um, perks, I believe they use, uh, coming up soon as well, which should be cool. What does the Kickstarter involve? We have all the chocolate makers that we're working with, plus a couple of others um, who are spread all across the US, have offered these, um, have just basically opened their pantry doors to us. So they're giving us, like a lot of them have just said, like as much chocolate as you need. Um, we have a lot of events, like a lot of chocolate making classes, um, you know, chocolate maker for a day. We have one, which I think is really cool um, and would be cool to do from Australia as well, where you get to go with a chocolate maker for um, a sourcing trip to one of the places where they go, probably the Dominican Republic. Oh. And then um, if you're in the US, go back to the US and use that very type of bean or that um, to make chocolate. So you basically source and make your own chocolate bar, which is I think really cool. So cool. Have you? Did you guys make your own chocolate bars? Well, we so we haven't finished shooting yet. So after um, when we're in the US, we're going to be spending time with um, most of the chocolate makers that we worked with to see their end process and everything like that, and kind of complete the circle. And so work with them on like how they make chocolate, what they're going to do with this particular type of bean to get the most out of it, whether you roast it, whether you leave it raw all that kind of stuff. So that should be really cool as well. Yeah, cool. So if people want to know more about setting the bar, you never know who's listening to this strange little podcast of mine. Um, where <laughs> can they Where can they go to find out more information? Um, so our website is www.settingthebarfilm.com. Okay. Yeah, so that's the best place to get in contact with us to the strange people who are listening to this strange podcast. Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay because uh, I called it strange. Yeah, so that's what that's where you can find us there. So we're putting information and, um, you know, as we go, we're putting information up there. Yeah, cool. Um, and what's, what's next, do you think? What are you going to make a doco about next? Oh, God, I don't know. I just want – this has been – so hard. I want to have a break. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah. I do have some ideas, but 
I think I'm not sure whether to stay in chocolate or branch out into a, another type of food. I like alcohol a lot, so it's either going to be chocolate or alcohol. So either way, it's a winner. <laughs> I like where your head's at. Tell us a little bit about the um, food culture in Oaxaca. Oh man, this one I could talk for a very long time about. Um, Oaxaca is kind of considered to be like the the food heart of Mexico, and it has some of the most like interesting and diverse types of food. And everything goes with mezcal as well, which I think is like picking up in Australia a little bit now. Yeah, um, it is. which is like tequila is a type of mezcal essentially, but mezcal is generally speaking a lot more. Um, you know, pure and artisanally done and tequila was kind of being a little bit bastardized and commercialized to the point where there's a lot of additives and all that kind of stuff. And mezcal is very pure, very interesting and really fun. Is it a different kind of drunk? Did you say a different kind of drunk? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess so. I don't know. It all depends on the person, but it's... Well, it's kind of, I mean, the thing that I find really interesting about mezcal is it comes, there's um, a bunch of different types of agave that it can come from, like kind of like wine. So whenever you drink mezcal here, you, like you ask what type of um, agave it is, where it comes from, how it grows, all that kind of stuff. So um, I'm actually working on a project um, next week for Vice, which is about medicinal mezcal and how it's used um here in Oaxaca, like more traditionally as a, like by, you know, to cure like things like cancer, which is mezcal with a rattlesnake in it. And then there's a lot of different types of different like herbs and everything like that in it. So there's a lot of stuff going on with mezcal here, which is super interesting. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, that's a great story in itself, hey? Yeah, I know. It's been bugging me for a while and there's a lot of issues with it around mass production and because ah see this is what happens. I always go off on a tangent whenever mezcal I can like like crowbar mezcal into the conversation. But <laughs> um mezcal is because it grows um largely wild and takes the plants can take up to thirty to thirty five years to grow and when you harvest them you you kill the plant and you roast the insides and then ferment. Well, your mezcal's popularity is actually making it so that uh, it's disappearing. And so we're, we're losing, and they say in like five years or so, we'll have lost a really big number of a lot of these really interesting types of mezcal. So, so will that come down to a different way of, of harvesting it? Or like, I mean, how do, you, how do you change that? Well, to change it is to, I think the price point needs to change, first of all. Like here, you buy mezcal for, you know, a couple of bucks a litre kind of thing. And I think that needs to change um, as demand grows. Yeah. And there's a lot of people putting a lot of work into um, different types of planting and cultivating mezcal. But it's hard to do with all these different types. You can only do it with about three different types at the moment, primarily, um, you know, for any. But then you still need to wait like 10 12 years for these plants to grow. So it's fairly time consuming for something that's going to get killed and, you know, use like 30 or so plants for like one liter of mezcal. Yeah. 
Yeah, wow. Well, there you go. There's your next, there's your next project. Sounds like it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I think we just figured it out. <laughs> All right. Well, Tim, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I just want to say thank you for keeping um, the caliber of my friends at a high standard. (laughs) That's a very sweet thing to say. Well, thanks for listening to me. Very few people do, so I appreciate it. (laughs) I always listen to you and I always laugh at your jokes. I think that's why we've been friends for so long. Very sweet of you. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, so I'll put all of the I'll put all of the details for the film in the show notes to this episode. And if anyone has any questions about anything related to this doco or chocolate or whatever, get in touch, and I'll put you in touch with Tim because I think this is a really cool story, and I think it needs to be told. Very cool. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, cool. Always happy to talk about chocolate as well. If you enjoyed today's episode, as always, you can find all the show notes over on the blog, theinspiredtable.com.au forward slash blog. If you want to hang out with me on social, come and find me on Instagram. It's where I spend most of my time at The Inspired Table or over on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash The Inspired Table. Until we meet again, have an inspirational week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.